Hi, I'm Rob Langton from Development Ready. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. Marco Gattino, Managing Director of Goldfields Group. Marco, thanks for your time this morning. I want to uh, I want to take it right back. How did you get your start in property? Yeah, I had a uh, an indirect route uh, into property. I think a lot of people do. Um, I. I was a lawyer in a past life, uh, spent a couple of years practicing. Uh, I was with a firm called Mills Oakley, who've got a presence in property. And in the late 90s, I came across uh, Clement Lee, uh, who's a prominent figure. You'd probably be aware of Clement and what he's doing in the industry. Uh, he's a veteran these days, uh, very well regarded, certainly highly regarded by, by most of our peers. Um, he was a client of the firm um, and my passion for the law wasn't there. Uh, and I certainly was taking an interest in property and felt that uh, there was a draw uh, towards property. And so I cold called uh, one of his partners, Luke Adams, uh, who's also very prominent um, uh, in the industry. And fortunately, I was uh, able to get a job uh, with them uh, in 2000. Uh, and I went in, wasn't real sure what I was going to do. I knew I was going to do some legal work, but I ended up becoming a bit of a utility man, you know, a jack of all. One thing led to another. And in 2001, we set up a company called Asset One. Uh, which uh, had a strong presence in land, uh, master plan communities, and then we also went uh, quite deep into commercial. So one of our most uh, well-known assets was the World Trade Center precinct. So we developed that. Um, so I spent almost 10 years uh, with Luke and Clement, uh, learned a lot, gained a lot of experience, a lot of insights, and got to the point in 2010 where I felt that it was probably time to go and do my own thing. Uh, and that's where uh, you know, Goldfields was born. Absolutely. And what was your role at Asset One? Well, by that stage we were developing, so we effectively set up a development entity with the support of Clement and Luke. Uh, we went off, acquired sites, developed them. Uh, I was doing almost everything, whether it be site identification, feasibilities, finance applications, uh, getting involved in development management. Uh, it was a small company, it became a big company. Uh, and I was fortunate there day one, so uh, as the company grew, my skill base also grew with it. And then in 2010, I think you mentioned there, you started Goldfields Group. What opportunity did you see at that time? It was an interesting time in the market. Uh, we'd come out of the GFC. Uh, Stimulus had certainly done its job in Australia. Um, I think you recall, I think it was called the Libraries and Canteens uh, strategy or initiative. Uh, and it certainly had a positive impact. Uh, the market and I saw the opportunity at that point in time to align with the secondary non-bank sector uh, that emerged out of the uh, GFC. You had a lot of ex-bankers who went off and set up their own shops and were looking for experienced, motivated developers who they could support. So you know, the Qualitases, um, the Monarchs uh, that came a bit later, IDA, which I'm sure we'll touch on today. Uh, we're doing more stuff with those guys today, but those independent shops uh, that that was really starting to gain traction and market presence. You know, I saw the opportunity to align and and build a business around those relationships. And how have you found the business has grown over the past ten years? And along with that, how has Melbourne changed over the past ten years? From the early 2000s, uh, had begun what I saw as a very strong, consistent trajectory of growth, uh, mainly. Uh, driven by population growth. Uh, the numbers of population growth we were seeing in the noughties and then post 210 were unprecedented. Uh, they were as high as they had ever been in Australia uh, in terms of percentages. And at the same time, we were seeing this tremendous uh, value growth as well, the inflationary effect uh, as a result of the population growth. Mm. You know, if you look at the OECD stats, 
uh, you know, our ability to have consecutive quarters of growth is a world record. Um, and where we sat in terms of OECD nations, in terms of continuous growth was number one, and probably was a clear beneficiary uh, of that. And I was, I was able to witness almost 20 years of that, 30 years of consecutive uh, growth. And the business today, who's involved in, and what's the focus of the company? As the founder of Goldfields, I'm, I'm heavily involved, mainly in macro strategic decision making, but I'm also heavily assisted by my CIO, Lachlan Thompson. Um, and together, uh, you know, we're evolving and growing the business uh, nationally. And what are some of the projects you've got underway at the moment? Our most prominent project in the market at the moment would be 627 Chapel Street, yeah. which is a 24,000 square metre uh, office tower uh, that's currently under construction and will be handing, or it will be handed over to us in October uh, 2021. So uh, it's not far away. Uh, it's about 16, uh, yeah, 16 months away. We've got, we've got various master plan communities around Australia. Uh, we've got a large one in Rockbank called Bridgefield. It's a thousand lot community. We've got a 1300 lot community in Ballarat called Winterfield, a thousand lot community in Ripley, Brisbane called Hayfield. We're about to, or we're in the planning phase on a couple of large sites in Chatswood, North Shore, Sydney. We've launched a boutique development in Pimble, which is a prestigious North, North Shore, Sydney uh, suburb. Uh, which has been very well received by the market. That's a snapshot of some of our deals, um, but the business is broader than that. And what are some of the intricacies? So you develop in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. How different are each of those markets? Yeah, very different. Uh, obviously, a market like Adelaide doesn't have the depth of the eastern seaboard markets. Uh, so we position ourselves in terms of sector and size or scale of development to suit that market. Different markets are also complemented by vertically integrated businesses that the group, group owns. Uh, so SA is heavily supported by our building company. So that has a very specific mandate and initiative uh, in terms of what we do in SA. Vic, Vic is a much bigger market, deeper market, allows us to play in a few different sectors. So we're in commercial, land, uh, built form, uh, residential, and we're embarking on our first hotel development uh, in Richmond as well. Sydney's similar to Melbourne in terms of its breadth uh, of opportunities, uh, but you're dealing at a different price point. Therefore, the deals are bigger by way of dollars and volumes. Uh, it's a very competitive marketplace. I would say it's a more competitive marketplace than Melbourne. Um, good sites are always hard to come by, but in Sydney, they're especially hard to come by. Um, fortunately, we've got good guys on the ground up there who are getting access to good deals, and we're building a very good footprint uh, in a Sydney at the moment. You mentioned one of your projects there, 627 Chapel Street in South Yarra, luxury office tower. Tell us about how that opportunity came about and then also I think you used non-bank lenders to source the finance yeah. component of yeah. that. 627 was formerly owned by Freecorp. Uh, I think they had other ideas about where they were positioning their business and where they were wanting to take Freecorp. Uh, so the, position, uh, the opportunity was presented to, presented to us by Melbourne Acquisitions, yep. uh, Dominic Gibson. Uh, we had a look at it and we, we could see an emerging trend for, we, we, we could already start to see early signs of decentralisation uh, out of the CBD and also just the, the value proposition whereby we could deliver an A-grade tower with all the amenity of being in the CBD at a rent cheaper than the CBD. Plus, there was no true A-grade, or when I say A-grade, property council defined A-grade building outside of the CBD within that South Yarra precinct. And we saw it genuinely as a once in a lifetime opportunity to utilise that site as an A-grade office tower. So if you take a walk down uh, Chapel Street, so north of Turak Road, yeah. there are no real opportunities to be able to deliver what we're going to deliver at 627. And Como has typically performed very strong 
for the very reason there's been very little competition in that market. So we felt it was time to bring a high quality A-grade office building to that market. And we, we, we've always felt that there'd be a lot of demand and interest uh, in people moving into the building. And we've, we've seen that since we launched our campaign. And it raises a good point. Why do you think developers, you look at Claremont Street, Yarra Street, anywhere in that Forest Hill precinct, it's all residential. Why do you think they've neglected yeah. office? Have they just overlooked it? No, they haven't. So the true vision for Forest Hill is to be a truly mixed use uh, precinct, integrated office and residential. Uh, just the metrics, you know, steered are the opportunities to residential. Yeah. Okay, so what the problem was, when you factor in land price, bill cost, the rents hadn't caught up yet uh, to justify a scale uh, office building. And in my view, that only happened, the crossover happened where rents could support it in about 2018. To me, that was the start of a run where rents then went from circa mid fours, face, to now we're talking 600 plus face. And you did the project, I think, on a speculative basis as opposed to the pre-commitment. Yep. What are some of the risks or benefits in, in doing that? Firstly, we had a very understanding lender and builder who were part of the lending team uh, that allowed, allowed us and had the faith in us to get on and inspect the building. Uh, not only does that allow us to get on and deliver the building in a very timely way, but also I think underpins and endorses our view around the potential demand and also the quality of the asset. Uh, the benefits are also that people looking for new space can plan their future with certainty. So if you walk to the site now, you can see that genuinely the site will be delivered by October 2021. So you can start to plan your, uh, your uh, tenancy requirements around that date. Uh, I think it's very hard not to spec and get a commercial building off the ground um, for that reason. Uh, but also what it allows us to do is it allows us to put more urgency on the potential tenant to make a decision because there are others in the market who have the certainty and are being motivated to also make decisions because mm -hmm. the opportunity won't be there forever. Yeah. yeah, there's not another 627 Chapel Street yeah. in the market. And how has it been received? It raises a good Very point. strong, yeah. yeah. So from the day we, we launched uh, the leasing campaign up to COVID, it's very strong, yeah. extremely strong. Number of heads of agreements uh, have gone out into the marketplace. I'd be lying if I said to you that COVID didn't put a pause on those heads going to AFLs, but that's happening. So we're starting to see now the dialogue come back and in the coming two, three months, we, we should start to see some of those heads convert to AFLs. And that's for a substantial portion of the building. And do you think that's part of a, a broader trend, particularly given COVID, whereby offices will start to decentralise away from the CBD yeah. Yeah. into precincts like South Yarra? Yeah. Without it sounding like a self-fulfilling prophecy, I actually think that COVID's done us a little uh, a favour. Yeah. Decentralisation is obviously a positive for us. The requirement for smaller plates so if the flexible workforce is really going to become a thing and companies need less space, the smaller plates we've got will be more suitable uh, to that. I think post-COVID, there are other advantages that we never envisaged when we launch a property that are actually going to work in our favour. And what are some of the things that tenants want to see in a building like 627 Chapel Street? I mean, is it, um, you mentioned they're smaller f uh, floor plates, but but what else? I mean, end of trip facilities. So, end of trip. Yep. So our, our brief or target was to deliver the best end of trip facilities of any building anywhere in Australia. I believe we've met that brief. Cox, who designed the building, have done a tremendous job. Uh, in delivering hotel quality or style into trip facilities. Being near transport is imperative. Uh, we've got South Yarra Station and we've got two tram lines. So 
uh, that, that creates a lot of opportunity for employers to attract talent. Um, and the technology. So we, we, we engaged a group called Meld, who I believe are the leaders in building tech. And they put a brief together to ensure the building was not only going to be at the forefront in terms of technology the day it opens, but also for the next decade to come. So there's a lot of technology being put into the building. For instance, it's a lanyon for environment. So everyone will have an app on their phone to access the smart lifts to get into the building, etc. Things yeah. like that. And uh, moving back to the, the company as a whole, Goldfields Group, I mean, um, you guys obviously with 627 Chapel Street, you're not just doing residential projects, you're doing office projects, you're doing land subdivision projects, doing other commercial projects. How important do you think it is to have a diversified project pipeline yeah. as opposed to just focusing on the one sector? Diversity has always been a good hedge against risk. Different sectors will always perform at different speeds. So just from that viewpoint, if one sector's soft, you know, hopefully other sectors are performing and that's, that's allowed us to, to you know, turn the taps on more in relation to those sectors. So, so at the moment, uh, I'd say that the office sector, especially post-COVID, non-CBD, will continue to perform very strongly. Uh, land, in my view, will continue to perform very strongly, uh, not only off the back of the grant, but I think the grant will set us up for the next phase of growth in land. Uh, but also I think there's more stimulus coming uh, around land as well. So apart from creating broader opportunities, it creates a hedging uh, position for us as a company. And what are some of the fundamentals you look for, whether it's whether you're you know, assessing a, an office development or a residential land subdivision, what are some of those site fundamentals you look for? Whenever we look at a property, return on capital is foremost. You know, as much as we're passionate about what we do and we love the idea of evolving the business to look at different, different sectors, it's all about how much we can make at the end of the day uh, for the capital investment, because if we're not making money, we're not in business. So that's, that's the primary goal. Um, so it's about balancing that objective with delivering a product we're proud of and being very good in the sectors that we're participating. Now, Marco, you were in the press last week in regards to the tie-up between IDA Property Group and Goldfields Group. Tell us about that. Adam Kay, who's the principal uh, at IDA, and I've known each other for almost 20 years. Uh, they've been involved in various deals with us. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, out, out of the GFC, uh, he had positioned his business to take advantage of the opportunities for the non-bank sector. So, Adam and I have had a very good relationship. Uh, we've had enough arguments and fights, uh, yeah, to know that we can trust each other uh, and get on and transact. But, but I'll make it clear, uh, we're not setting up an arrangement that limits either company's ability to still continue to transact and do what they've always done. Yeah. Uh, but there's a very specific mandate around this capital raise, which is to go after, in terms of the built form space, residential property that is well located, but provides value so what we're seeing is strong demand or interest from the channel and aggregation groups for product that values well and is well located in terms of amenity. So this fund in particular will go after those types of assets that have those attributes. We'll also take advantage of some land opportunities. So within our stable, uh, we have access to good deal flow, plus as an existing whip, uh, which, which uh, the fund will be uh, involved in. So um, for us going forward as a company, the ESOS is build the capital base, which will then aid and support the growth. So this relationship with IDA is, is one plank or key plank in that growth strategy as we 
continue to build our capital base. And the focus will be residential projects along the east coast? Yes, yeah, eastern seaboard, that's right, land and build form. And do you see any particular opportunity in you know any regions, whether it's in a Melbourne, in a Sydney, yeah. any... Yeah, so Goldfields is heavily invested in Ballarat, and we've seen tremendous demand and growth happening up there, and at the moment, you know, keeping it simple, that market's on fire. And we, we, we think that trend up there will continue for some time. Build form's always a challenge in the regions, just because of the cost of the... Uh, the building. Um, land is cheap, but unfortunately most of the cost uh, sits within construction and therefore it's very hard to make uh, apartments within regions work. There's greater opportunities in New South Wales uh, for that to happen and parts of Queensland, but Vic is very difficult outside of Melbourne and Geelong. Uh, but certainly as the company evolves, we're, we're, not in, we're not averse to any new growth opportunities. What we've done as a business since mm. 2010. And just on, say, for example, Ballarat, I mean, where do you find the buyer demand comes from? Is it local? Is it people moving out of Melbourne? Yeah, it's, a, it's a combination of both. Um, so you've got, you've got local demand, just as that market grows organically. You've got the state government decentralising certain departments, creating jobs up there, private sector creating jobs there, which brings more demand. Yeah. Uh, so that's localised demand. But we've, got, we've seen people almost have a sea change. So they're seeing the value proposition and lifestyle opportunities by going from a Melbourne suburban housing estate to a Ballarat housing estate where the land's cheaper but the blocks are bigger with the same level of amenity. So if you don't have an affinity or desire to need to be in the city regularly, there's a greater lifestyle and more cost-effective lifestyle opportunity in Ballarat. And how important, uh, I was looking on your website earlier, I mean, you've got swimming pools and tennis courts in these communities. How much of a, a you know, drawing point for buyers is that? Yeah, so uh, we're selective where we will do a residence club, uh, but it is a differentiator. Uh, there are certain buyers who will gravitate to this state purely because of that amenity and they see the opportunity that affords them and their children mm -hmm. as they grow up uh, within the housing estate. So the economics of it need to stack up but at the same time, if the market, if we assess the market as being one that'll actually value that amenity and it works within the economic you know, calculation, then yeah, we're likely to go forward with a residence club. And just again, in a, in a Sydney context, where do you find the opportunities there or what challenges are there? You mentioned obviously competing on some of these yeah. projects, but where's the opportunity that you guys see? I'm like every other developer, most good deals come through your networks and they're off market. So we've got a network through Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide that, that we're regularly in dialogue with and contact with. Um, Sydney, to a lesser extent Melbourne, but Sydney certainly experienced a huge level of demand uh, from offshore investors through probably 210 through the 2018, mm -hmm. late 17, 18, which made it very hard for local developers who were not well capitalised to compete. Certainly that pressure's come out, but we're seeing an emergence of local, well-capitalised developers now coming to the fore. It was never easy, Sydney, and it still isn't easy, uh, but there are opportunities out there if you know how to find them. And where do you think construction costs are going? Some people are saying they're going to be reduced, uh, some people say they're going yeah. to be increased due to you know less tenders um, and less competition in the building space. Where, where, yeah. What are your thoughts? I, I think we're at a unique juncture in terms of construction. So we've got a situation where I genuinely think that builders will be pricing to win jobs because just the, their future pipeline is not what it was. Um, so they've got their own pressures to win work. So I actually think if you take out the cost of materials, the cost of delivering the building will be cheaper. But the conflict that we've got is 
there is a huge pipeline of infrastructure projects and I believe as part of the future stimulus plans the government will announce more infrastructure projects which will put pressure on materials. So it's going to be about balancing the cost of labour, the cost of delivering the building with the cost of materials and seeing where that ends up. We are seeing today very sharply priced jobs. So as we go into market to price, as we go into the market to price jobs, we're seeing very sharp pricing come back. But I feel there'll be real pressure on materials. I noticed last week in, in one of those articles you were mentioning, you were pretty bullish on housing uh, and the undersupply of housing in 2022. Yeah. Why do you take that point of view? You only have to look at the stats in terms of starts, unit starts. So that comment was made in the context of apartments. 2016, I think, was the peak in terms of unit starts ever. It was uh, circa 114,000 starts. 2019, it dropped to, I think, 68,000 starts. And there's no doubt 2020 is going to be significantly less than that. So whilst we're going to have a migration drop off, it's not going to correlate to a position where we're achieving, say, a third of where we were in 2016. So there's going to be pent up demand. If you look at the 10 year average, which is sitting somewhere between 70 to 80,000, and I think we're going to drop to 40, 50,000 this year, that pent up demand is sitting there waiting. So to me, there's going to be a rebound. That rebound will start towards late 2021, 2022. By that stage, population movements are happening. If there's a vaccine delivered late this year or early next year, it'll happen quicker. Um, and also, I think stimu uh, stimulus will well and truly have found its way through the economy and doing what it needs to do. And in addition, and I made this comment to the AFR, if you want to deliver a building in 2022, even late 2022, the first steps are taken now uh, to do that. So just follow the data and the pent up demand is, is building. So it's a matter of does it happen mid, mid next year or late next year, but that, that demand's going to rebound back. And with your residential projects, do you try and target owner occupiers or investors or do you cater to both? What are the advantages? Uh, la land is mainly owner occupier. Yep. Resi is a combination of both. So, so Sydney is a real mix. So Sydney, Sydney is a market where you will find a lot more owner occupiers living with investors. And I think that's a price point issue. Whereas in Melbourne, we, see, we tend to see separation between an investor grade tower and an owner occupier tower. So for us, Melbourne is more of an investor grade strategy, whereas Sydney's a mix of both and Brisbane is an investor grade strategy. And just looking back, say, over the past six months, presumably buyer demand dropped off in sort of late March, April. Has it rebounded quite strongly since then? Very strongly in land. We'd actually started to see momentum building up in land before the grant and the grant just literally turbocharged it mm. nationally. In residential apartments, uh, we've seen a steady level of inquiry and demand mm. uh, across the projects. How has marketing projects changed, do you think, over the past five, 10, 15 years? Social media. Social media. Yeah, everything. Social yeah. media is everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, REA certainly, you know, fair to say they had the market to themselves for a long time yeah. uh, and still do a great job, but social plays such an important part. You only need to look at the stats now across all of our sales offices mm. as the amount of lead generation coming through social mm. uh, and online. And I know you do a lot in the way, you know, project short films and that sort of thing. Is that the sort of content that you put out on social yeah. media to try and draw yeah. the, the buyers in? Whether it's a buyer or someone who's looking to buy, mm. they love seeing the product. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing that speaks in greater volume than a drone, you know, flying over the estate and seeing newly built roads and lots being delivered. Mm. Any challenges that you foresee uh, in the market generally in, in terms of either 
getting projects through planning, that sort of thing? I mean, yeah. is, is planning still difficult or do you find all? Yeah, so different jurisdictions obviously you know, operate within different parameters. Uh, Sydney's as hard as ever, but Sydney's always been hard. Um, Melbourne, fair to say that VCAT used to provide, I think, a, a greater degree of certainty, and, and most inner city projects are going to VCAT these days. Um, I think we're at a point in time where there is less certainty about which way VCAT will go on a decision. So you're taking on the risk to try and achieve a permit, but we've probably never felt this unsure about you know, VCAT outcomes mm. um, compared to sort of maybe up to 2016, 2017. Planning has always been a challenge and continues to be a challenge, I'd say a greater challenge than what it's been in the past. Where do you look for inspiration for your projects? Do you look overseas? Do you look at what other developers are doing? Where does that sort of yeah, it, come It's from? a good point. Um, look at those who are doing it best in the marketplace. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to copy them, but you can be inspired by what they're doing. The innovators and align yourself with very good consultants. You know, very, take, for instance, a very good you know, frontline architect. They are tuned in with trends and movements that are happening globally, globally mm. and by virtue of using them, you're getting access to that IP. Yeah. You know, they will charge you for it, but you get access to the IP. So it's a combination of your own sort of observations and you align that with good consultants and you should, should end up with a very good, innovative sort of solution. One final one, how long do you think it's going to take for this economic recovery to occur on a macro level in Australia? People a lot smarter than me probably can't answer that question. Uh, if I were to, to guess, a vaccine will have a lot to do with it, but let's assume we're in a world where there's no vaccine. I think the Morrison government's done a fantastic job of stabilising our economy. Uh, JobKeeper, to me, was genius. Uh, whilst it's only sustainable to a point, I'm certain the government's got other levers up its sleeve that it will pull as it needs to as we go beyond September. You only have to think about the stimulus in the land market. The fact it does very little, if anything, for the residential apartment market, there must be some state or federal government initiative coming to support that sector. Um, and I think there'll be other initiatives that will support the economy and property sectors. So I think in terms of cre job creation, I think there's going to be a push a continued push to ensure jobs are, there is a recovery uh, through to the end of this year. In terms of 2021, uh, we need population to, to start coming back to the levels that it was at in 2018, 2019. Global factors are going to play a big role in that in terms of how um, other countries deal with the pandemic. Uh, at the moment, that's not looking great. It looks as though that's got quite a tail uh, to run. I think if we just look at, at it organically, I think within 12 months, population movements are happening again internationally and locally. I think we'll see the benefit of stimulus. The economy will be awash with cash. But the big thing for me is the ability for government to work with banks to create greater liquidity within the marketplace, especially for the retail buyer. If they can solve that, then I think that's going to create a very strong platform to support the growth and support the initiatives uh, that will be in place for property going forward because it all works together. You know, there's no point encouraging developers to bring on supply if the liquidity is not there for the buyer to actually be able to you know, complete their, their acquisitions or their, their sales. So uh, to me, that's the key equation that needs to be solved. If we can solve that. You know, property makes up, I think, 23, 24% of GDP when you put, look at property as a whole in terms of all the sectors and, and industries that are part of the property industry. You know, it's a quarter of, the, quarter of our economy hangs off property. 
meaning that you can stimulate and trigger growth very quickly within the sectors, but you need the banks on board as well. So the government's got a continued role to play with the banks and also with stimulus. Marco Gutino, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been enjoyable. Thank you.